Okay, everyone, let's be honest here. Whether you are living abroad or at home, having a financial plan is vital to charting your financial future. I know that some of us really don't like talking about money because it can be overwhelming, which is why you may want to consider speaking with the professionals at Smith Brewer Advisors. From retirement to investment management and estate and tax planning, an experienced financial advisor at Smith Brewer Advisors will help you create a plan to meet your financial goals. And what's awesome? They empower their clients to make the right decisions for their individual situation. To learn more about working with a fiduciary financial advisor, visit smithbreweradvisors.com. Proud sponsors of the Global Chatter podcast. Smith Brewer Advisors LLC is a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Hey everyone, it's Amanda Bates here, host of the Global Chatter podcast and founder of the Black Expat. A few years ago, I connected with ALOC, which was founded by Kevin Simpson, who's been a guest on this show. If you don't know about ALOC, it stands for Association of International Educators and Leaders of Color. And it's an organization that exists to both amplify and support educators of color in international school spaces. I've had the privilege of speaking at this conference a few times, and one of the best parts are the people I get to meet, including my next guest, Yasmin Sadri. Yasmin is a Swiss-based leadership transformation coach with a specific interest in diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And in this episode, the Iranian-Belgian describes her highly mobile childhood and how her work with marginalized populations was partially inspired by her family's own immigrant movement story. We discuss specifically the themes of class, immigration, identity, and religion as she's lived across borders. And we also discuss how she's using her voice to highlight and speak on behalf of those who don't have the platform or even the freedom to do so. I think this is a great episode and I hope you enjoy it. And after you give it a listen, don't forget to drop a review and share it with a few friends. Welcome to the Global Chatter. Good day, everyone. You are back listening to another episode of The Global Chatter. It is early in the morning for me, maybe not as early (laughs) as some other times I've recorded, but it's early enough. And you have listened to the intro, so you know who my guest is today. I've got Yasmin, who's with me, and I am thrilled about the conversation we're going to have today because As many of you know, part of the global chatter is really bringing in different black and brown voices with different perspectives and then adding that international flair. And I feel like she just checks all of those boxes and more when you hear. So I want to welcome her to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you, Amanda. I'm doing well. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, honestly. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, you know, same here. Like you and I, travel adjacently in the same circles or at least know a lot of the same people. And so I was just thinking last year about how much I wanted to have you on the podcast because I think you're going to bring a voice that I haven't had as much represented here. And so this is going to be fun because it's always fun when I have guests on. So, all right. So here's the question I ask. I ask every guest from the beginning, where in the world are you right now? So right now I'm in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. I was going to say, how long have you been in Geneva? 
So this is going on my, I've been here for five years, I think, next month, five years in Geneva. Wow. <laughs> That's the question. I, I, I never think about it, but it's been five years. Yeah. Now, Andy, you know, it's funny whenever I ask people how long they've been in an area and especially if they've been in an area for a long time, they, <laughs> they, they kind of pause and go, wow, I didn't think I'd be here this long. So I feel like <laughs> that's a common thing. Well, that's ex- exactly what just happened is that um, actually, if I have to think about it even, even more, I don't think I've been in the same place for five years. Um, I want to say ever, oh, yeah. Ma- maybe r- oh, right yeah. around college, because I did do <laughs> my master's just, just right after my bachelor's. So it was, Almost five years. So this is the first time. Wow. <laughs> right. No, I've had those moments too where I went. I, the first time I was somewhere very long, I went, uh, this is weird. Like, why am I here for so long? But I think, I mean, I think it's part of getting older and also jobs yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably keep us in areas. And so even though you're in Switzerland, let's kind of take it back. Where did you grow up? Like, what is your international story? I was born in Belgium, in uh, Leuven, Flanderen. So Flanders, Belgium. And I lived there for several years. Um, I, I, I could be really specific and say I lived there until first grade. Then we moved to the U.S. for the first time. Then we came back for mm. second grade. Then went back to the U.S. Uh, until sixth grade. Came back to Belgium and then seventh grade, actually through high school. So five, five and a half years again, actually probably, yeah, five, five, six years actually then lived in California, did my high school. And so if we're talking about growing up, because I I believe we're always growing up, but at at my childhood, if you wish, uh, was um, in those places. So Born in Belgium, raised between Belgium and the U.S. That's the that's the big picture. <laughs> so you're sounding like a third culture mm-hmm. kid, <laughs> like right off the bat. What was driving the move between Belgium and the U.S. for your family? That's a good question because, you know, I do really relate to the third culture kids and I'm in the international education space and I'm actually not an international school student if you if you wish in the classic sense my mm-hmm. what drove the moves between Europe and the US was mostly my my parents job or 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 search for a job I should say um because they and I could go really into this, but really just the the opportunities that were or were not between Europe and the U.S. So when when I said my first move was mm-hmm. right around um, first grade for me is that my father at the time. So my father um, moved to Europe when he was 19. My mom was 17 um, for his soccer career. And so after the soccer career, oh, wow. uh, football career, the the kind of not being classically educated in a in a place in the world where this was of of great importance especially um as an immigrant you know so many layers to get through but uh, ultimately the lack of opportunities in Belgium made my dad go well you know people who have left Iran for similar reasons right um they've been able to go to the US they've been able to go elsewhere where they have had you know 
opportunities to work, opportunities to make a living. So we kind of went back and forth between Europe and the U.S. Um, with that, with that drive, if you wish. I mean, I think right there is such a fascinating story. And I, I want to roll back something you said. Obviously, you know, you work in international education, but you're, you, and you yourself growing up as a third culture kid wasn't an international mm-hmm. <laughs> student, right? An, an international school student. And it just made me think about two things. Like, it just so happens that I'm working on a, on a, some information for the Black expat on third culture kids, right? And one of the stories that we had many years ago, like the first year we launched, was written by Mary Basie, which ended up being one of the most popular uh, stories on the site because she titled it the Third Culture Kid article I wish I had read. And she talked about her, you know, she's originally Mm -hmm. from Nigeria and, you know, her third culture-ness took her to Canada and then eventually the U.S., and she thought, you know, she wrote about it, obviously the joy of finding this term because by right. the time she knew what a TCK was, <laughs> she was in college. But, but more importantly, she talked about, she realized that her TCK experience seemed like mm-hmm. it was different from other people's, right? She was coming from the global South. She'd never gone to international schools. Her dad was a mm-hmm. professor. There was an assumption she'd repatriate because she's, right. you know, coming from the global side, like all this stuff. Right. And, and so as I'm hearing you talk about your, your experience and your, and your family, you know, your parents originally coming from Iran, it's really interesting to me how in our minds, we still have this narrative of like, like every TCK I know who didn't go to international school almost has explained they didn't (laughs) go to international school, but I almost feel like the that is probably more of those TCKs than there are right. that have the traditional term. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and 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 actually, um, you know, this is just another part of of, of someone's identity. The reason I, I I kind of make the distinction, and it I, I don't believe it necessarily um, makes well. Actually, it does make the experience that much different. Um, so my parents you know, contrary to a lot of the parents that I work with and, you know, all, all my respects, uh, my parents grew up with very, very little money. And so the third culture mm-hmm. kid experience is so much more kind of, I feel like really in the family and in the school is just that much more emphasized because I feel like at international schools, um, what we can do is really build this kind of place where all the cultures, or at least we try and increasingly we're trying, right. Where at least all the cultures are kind of like brought mm-hmm. out and um, appreciated and, 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 and celebrated. Whereas in the experience uh, that I have, and I actually have a few friends who share this experience with me is like, especially as an immigrant, especially perhaps without the ability to go on all the school trips, et cetera, et cetera. It kind of gives you this distinctness within the, within the school or even within Mm -hmm. the um, private setting. Whereas I feel like what we do a good job at uh, and increasingly, like I said, in international schools is kind of like, okay, what do you have to offer and how can we meet you there? And so it's kind of like this thing where, especially, you know, unfortunately the more means you have as a family the more you can do as well so i see it in in some of my you know students mm-hmm. is that they can do so many different extracurriculars etc cetera, etc cetera. so you see, you see where i'm getting at 
that, that's I think that's where it makes it a bit yeah. different. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to think about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think about this stuff a lot. I mean, I think that's why I end mm-hmm. up with these platforms, right? Because <laughs> because one of the things, you know, the classism that's attached to mm-hmm. these terms and 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 who gets to be them. And I just, you know, I like I I'm I'm hearing your story and I'm like, that's probably and, and here's the here's the funny thing. I'm hearing your story and that's probably the TCK experience I'm the most familiar with, even though I am a, someone who went to international mm. schools. <laughs> and, and, and so having, having seen a little bit of, you know, or having seen both sides of the fence, if you will, I'm always in, intrigued in terms of how we communicate our, our stories when they are especially not the ones that are the most mm. marquee or the headlining, you know, this is what this experience is. And so I'm curious then, you know, what, okay. So both your parents have this mm-hmm. Iranian identity, right. And you're living, you know, as a child, you're living in the U S and you're in Belgium. How does that, how does that play out? So in, you know, in the U S there, there is an Iranian diaspora, right. Um, in Belgium, what it was there a community of also Iranian immigrants that your family was connected to, or was it really, you know, just the greater community that they were plugged in? Like, how how did this sure. look growing up? As a um, kid? So very different, obviously, between uh, California and and Flanders, as you say. Um, in, in in California, we did have, you know, some kind of Iranian community around us, but it also depends where we lived. I mean, we lived in like eight, nine different places. So like went all over Southern okay. California. Um, so some places more than others. And in Belgium, um, completely the, the contrary, that, that was really a place where, I mean, my parents came there, like I said, they came uh, right before the revolution for, you know, sport. And, you know, my parents were super young. Mm. So they kind of just thinking about, the the ability to really just kind of get plugged in at such a young age into a culture that's not yours and so they they were maybe yeah like I said 19 and 17 and so they really were also because I believe I mean young people um less threatening than you know a family and I'm just being frank here um speaking speaking on what I've heard and read is is kind of less less threatening so people from the community, so older people especially kind of were drawn to them as like, oh, let's take care of these young people. And so by the time I was born, so my parents were in Belgium maybe uh, 15 years before I was born. And so by the time I was born, I have an older brother. They were kind of part of that community and increasingly the the Belgians around them. So um, talking about the older mm-hmm. Belgians who also attended the matches and people who, like I said, kind of uh, tried to help my parents, they became kind of mentors for my parents. And so what happened is back to your question mm-hmm. is that actually by the time I was born, my parents had learned by them that, well, if you baptize your kids as Catholics and then, you know, they kind of do all the same things that our kids did and all that kind of stuff. Um, then it'll be easier for them. And so they tried that. And despite, I think, the efforts, I mean, I have a great Belgian community uh, around me. And I think right now at this age, I'm able to, also with my work, I'm able to kind of explain that my experience um, as 
a brown kid, um, white passing brown kid, but brown kid nonetheless, um, was really eye-opening. I mean, it's the reason why I do my work, actually, is is um, not to steer too far from the question, but, like, I remember when I first started at the International School of Geneva, I'm still young, and I was younger, and so the kids were like, oh, you know, there's someone in the building who will run with us, they'll sit with us, they'll go to break with us, you know, all these things. And so I was observing a lot, and I realized that the... Um, the kids that I was working with, so I did year one, two, three, four, um, kind of on rotation. And the kids I was working with, they were dealing with the same things on the playground. And so in an international school, we could come back to that. But my experience in Belgium, mm-hmm. really eye-opening. And it, I mean, not only as a, as a child, right, it comes back to to even um, my last job there, my, my last few years there. But, but yeah, long story short, it's very different. And so to kind of what I'm doing increasingly is trying to draw parallels between the things that happened in Belgium and the things that happened in the U S and it's so different. And, mm-hmm. and there are some similarities, but it is a completely different experience. And I would say, especially before nine 11, because before nine mm. 11 in the U S you know, you had some jokes, you had people make inappropriate comments, microaggressions, which I would refer to as macroaggressions, but still, you know, mm-hmm. and still, it's it's it was different. Same, same, but different. Yeah, okay. right. <laughs> I haven't heard that in a while. I'm a millennial. <laughs> I have to. <laughs> right. I was like, yeah. I just, man. Oh God, thank you yeah. for unpacking that. Right. No, because you you unpacked a lot, and I because you're right. I think you highlighted the fact that your parents mm-hmm. were young when they moved to Belgium, so that that completely changes people's mm. perspectives, right? As opposed to being ordered older, yeah. more settled. Obviously, your you know, your father being a football player, aka soccer for those of you <laughs> not American. <Yeah. laughs> or for those of you Americans rather. And 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 that having an impact too, because sport, you know, people can transcend quite a mm. bit with sport. I mean they can't transcend everything because there's still racism, clearly, as we see. Uh, but yeah, you know, and then going between the two countries. And so, you know, you you had the experience of of being a student mm-hmm. in both places. And so how did all of this, I think, impact kind of your own identity growing up? Because you, you lived both in Belgium and in mm-hmm. the U.S., <laughs> like while all this is happening. And so how did you see yourself like? What did young you see and view your kind of your, what was your perspective of where you fit in or were you trying to fit in or not fit in? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) um, (laughs) What was my perspective? I think I never really gave it much thought. I think when, and there's a lot of good things that I've read, uh, especially the last few years is when you, when you move so much, I mean, and this is, again, this is where all third culture kids can find each other um is when you move countries or contexts like it's so hard to already kind of you know settle in the physical space but then also mentally you know it has to it takes time to adapt to it and so i think that's already something that's so difficult and so when you look at how it's kind of like it's not a fight or flight response but it's it kind of becomes this you know 
almost survival mechanism is just kind of not to give it much thought. And I was lucky. Uh, I am lucky that quite an extroverted, um, or especially as a kid, you know, the, this extroversion and, and, you know, we mm-hmm. can look at it as a loop. You don't know what, what causes what, um, was I extra social because I moved so much and I had to, or is it, is it the other, is, is it innate? It's probably a combination of both. Right. So I think, for me, it, the, the mechanism was really just like, look for your people. And so the, the funny thing is, is that like for the last, I don't know, five, five years, like I said, I've been here and it's something that I thought wouldn't be possible um, as it was happening, but I still have really close relationships with people in, you know, cause I said, I lived in like nine places in California. Right. And at some ages where it may, yeah. may seem really insignificant to make a new friend and then move, you know, nine other times, but there are people that, um, I have managed to, to kind of stay really close with. So it's, it's interesting. I guess my, my perspective of self was really, um, adaptable. And and like I've told people the last few years is like, it sucks while it happens, right? Excuse my language. It it really, to to move and to get up again and start your life over. Um, And, you know, at a certain age with, with, with school and work and, and life, frankly, I was really grateful for my parents to keep trying, you know, for themselves um, to kind of find a place because ultimately it did bring me a lot of richness, right? Different cultures, different languages, different people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my perspective, I, I guess, I mean, yeah, I, I, I couldn't like stop, stop and stand still and analyze too much, right? Because I was constantly moving. So yeah. uh, in retrospect, I could say a lot, but at that time, I think as a child, you're just kind of like, okay, new friends, new culture, new classroom. Like I, I remember, <laughs> and this is maybe like one of those stories that I've talked about to my own students now, um, especially the younger ones that, that move and don't know the language. They'll get inserted into the classroom and then they'll have, you know, there's so many things going on and I see it because I've, I've been there. And I just remember that the teachers really that, you know, in, in first grade, there was this teacher that I've called Miss um, Honey, not knowing if, if this was really Miss Honey, if this was really her name, or if I just read too much Matilda right at this time. So, so right. um, there was this teacher that I remember vividly in her face, you know, her movements. And she, this was first grade moving to the US and I didn't speak a lick of English. And so my mom would bring me to the school gates and terrifying. Like, you're absolutely like, where in the world have you brought me? What is this, you know, what is going on here? And what is this language that they're speaking? Right. And so this teacher, this would have been my, my homeroom teacher, I guess she with so much grace just would come to the school gates for, I don't know how many weeks every day to kind of like take me from my mother and, and, and bring me into the classroom. And it's funny because like, it sounds like a really sad story and, and, and it is in some, some ways, you know, quite sad when this happens to a kid but the the it's always the the impact and the outcome that I that I would would focus on to make it a little bit more more joyful is that ultimately like three four weeks later I went home speaking 
fluent English and like really close with Miss Honey and the whole class and her friends, you know? So, so yeah. yeah. So I got sidetracked. Miss Honey was, was, I call her Miss Honey and everything. And she was really uh, something else. And I've, I've tried to look for, this is the thing with moving. I've tried to look for their name and it, it's in the works. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by The International Educator. Many of you know, part of my professional background is both in career development and education, which means I get a number of educators asking me how they can launch their careers abroad. If that's you, you need The International Educator, which connects English-speaking teachers with opportunities at international schools around the world. Not only do you find out about vacancies, but you get much-needed information on topics as varied as housing options, tax-free salaries, and professional development. And here's the thing. All subjects and grade levels are needed. For limited time only, Thai is offering discounts on memberships for Global Chatter listeners. So visit ThaiOnline.com and use the promo code GlobalChatter to save on your membership today. You know, one thing with those who've been highly mobile, who've been third culture kids, whatnot, is that even when I look at them as adults, you can definitely see that thread of how their upbringing really impacted sort of their professional choices and where they landed. And so, you know, you you lived between the U.S. and Belgium as a kid. You went to college in Europe, of course, and I believe in Belgium. And then you also did uh you know, graduate studies in the U.S. And so even with all of that, this is always a question. I mean, this is an international podcast. What what brought you to Switzerland? Like what first got you there? So um, actually, and, and I don't know how many people know this, but love, love brought me to Geneva, uh, definitely. And it was in a time where um, I had just... I didn't want to renew my contract as a journalist um, because it was giving me a really hard time actually at the time. And, and we didn't, we mm -hmm. didn't go too much into this uh, before, but actually my, my work before was definitely journalism. Um, mm -hmm. I got kind of pulled into it. I was uh, recruited because of some of the blogs I had and I always thought I would love it. And I actually didn't like it at all um, because of the, because of, and, and I'm just being frank here, because of the way the media preferred bad stories and negative mm. news. And, and so as a humanitarian, that's always been there. Um, the, the job just wasn't for me. I wanted the, the uniting stories, the warm, you know, the stories behind the stories, the people stories. And so when I realized there was no room for that, even though they really wanted to, to keep me in this um, national newspaper, I, I just decided to to move on because um, my relationship uh, in, in in Belgium with someone who is from uh, Geneva and you know born and raised here, I was like, okay, you know what? Um, I have some refugee projects that I'm working on here in Brussels. So I was in Brussels before. I don't know if I specified that. Um, 
I was in Brussels before. And so because of some of the projects I had in mind and I was already working on, they told me like, well, you know, just come see in Geneva if there's anything that you would like to do. I mean, you speak a few languages. Um, you know, I didn't really speak French at the time, but kind of, um, which is another mm-hmm. thing. But there was there was just, you know, no reason not to come and try it here. I've always kind of been nomadic and lived everywhere. So, um yeah, I guess that that's a long story short is what brought me here was love. And then what kept me here was the endless opportunities of seeing a place where, I mean, children's rights, refugee rights, they're all kind of born in Geneva on paper, let's say. So for me, that was yeah. like, okay, I... I want to make a difference here um, and see where it takes me. Mm, wow. You know, it's really interesting what you said about the, your journalism career. <laughs> and I, and, and the part that got me was the, and I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> were you, and I mean, you were saying this, was there such an emphasis on more the negativity or was there a slant or a bent mm. that you were expected or asked to go in or what, what was, oh, what was around that? <laughs> yeah. I should say, Oh, Amanda. Um, no. So the, I was hired as the first person of color, young, young person of color. I think I was 23 when I was recruited, 22 when I was recruited. And so I, I was fresh out of college. And even though I'd been working, like I've always worked, combined work with, with, with studies, even though I'd been working, this was like the job where they came and recruited me. So I had a lot high expectations, but as, and I, I, I try not to say, but I don't know if you've noticed, shout out to Visions, Visions <laughs> Inc. for, for changing my life with that one. So, and as my identity, right? Person of color, young, immigrant background, immigrant family. The system just wasn't accommodating at all. And by that, I mean, on the first day, there were comments about my, you know, um, complexion. And then there was things about, you know, oh, is she going to be able to write? Did she even, you know, learn how to write in Dutch, all these things. So that was one thing. Wait, yeah, um, yeah, stop. yeah, yeah. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to skim over that. Comments about your complexion. Mm. What? Well, it's... it's People. You know, and it, it's not just limited to that, but things like, you know, oh, you're exotic. Where are you from? Or kind of, you know, the microaggressions. Mm. And this is, this is, you know, way before we were really talking about all this uh, on a regular basis and we could call in or call out behavior like this. Right. And so in me and my job, you kind of ask questions about, you know, where are you really from? Where are you from? Even though on the phone, for example, if I had to interview politicians or anyone, um, the, the behavior would be very different when I was on the phone with them than it were, when right. I was in person with them. In person. And so um, that in combination with, you know, this isn't a time when the Paris attacks happened. And then I moved to Brussels and the Brussels attack ha- happened. And so, you know, without right. going into, you know, I lived with my brother. Right. My bro- brother lived with me at the time. And he had gone to the gym. My best friends take that metro every morning. Like all these things. Um, it's a time where media 
became online media. And so I did mostly work for the, for the website. So short articles, et cetera. It's a time where, you know, it, we're still not over that time, by the way, for a lot of these things, but that people were getting, yeah. you know, internet warriors, keyboard warriors, where they're kind of like, oh, you know, Muslims go back to your countries, this, that. So as a young journalist dealing with, you know, I, I don't want to call it imposter syndrome at this point, because I didn't know. I just thought it was normal that they're like, oh, exotic. Oh, can she write these things? You know, it's a new job. You kind of think, you know, take what you can get. Um, and this is really sad to say. Uh, but on top of that, the terrorism, racism, kind of everything that was happening in the world, which had already been happening, but at this point, media cracked the code that if you focus on this, this is where the money's at because people will click on things that are yeah. that are absolutely yeah. terrible, you know, unfortunately, clickbait. So anyway, those things yeah. really led me to go, wow, this is not at all, it's not healthy to focus on, you know, to be on call, for example. We were, we were the online team was on call for anything terror related. So the, the attacks, like <laughs> I can't even tell you, you know, the attacks right. would happen yeah. and... I mentioned my brother and my friends earlier who take that metro route. You know, you're writing articles and at the same time you're like, did anyone pass? You know, did anyone pass away? Did I did I miss something? So it's just a yeah. lot of stress for 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 a person to handle in such a situation. Actually, and I wasn't the only one who in the years after also just yeah. people people left left the job. You bring up an interesting point and I'm I'm curious if if you or you know you've talked about your brother have had those experiences i mean you've 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 talked about you know how you present and 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 people being really <laughs> asking those microaggressive sure. questions but have you experienced or maybe your brother or maybe even your parents kind of mm-hmm. those direct <laughs> accusations within i mean obviously living in Having lived in Switzerland, having lived in Belgium, I'm sure you've traveled to other parts of Europe, right? Assumptions about who you are, you know, where you're from, what you believe. Has that been part of your story or at least part of the stories of the folks you Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's what I said earlier. I didn't I don't know if I got to it, but the the amount of hate mail I received as a journalist, like Muslim infiltrator, this, that. And as you asked the question also, my brother on that, on the, on the Brussels attacks day, right? I was on call. I didn't want to go too much into detail because, um, because of time, yeah. but my, my brother, um, so I was on call and this was my first alone on call. So you started like six, six thirty in the morning. You start by covering the news and this news starts rolling in about the Paris, uh, the Brussels attacks. Sorry. We live really close to the Metro fairly close to to the other metro attack because they were kind of um parallel and then you know the airport all these things and so my brother all the phone lines were like there was some bug because everyone's trying to reach each other i mean it was a whole thing and so my brother wasn't coming home and i know he goes to the gym early and then comes home around i don't know it must have been like i don't want to say the wrong thing now but like it must have been like 8 30 and so he wouldn't come home. And so it took hours for him to get home. And by, and then he got home and he's like, yeah, I was stopped and I was searched. And they like questioned me. And because he's, he's, you know, he's a brown guy with a beard. I think at that time he had some kind of a 
a beard and a backpack and he's in gym clothes and like it was it's, it's terrible so yeah if when you ask about my my experiences and my, my my family I would say more my father and brother I guess on a more regular basis uh, my dad's also a taxi driver he was he actually just retired um, so he's he's had a lot of people kind of say things to him in the car about you know where are you really from oh you're from there this that and then me myself on the job as a journalist um actually before I was recruited as a full-time journalist I was a festival reporter and so I would go from festival to festival with this like really flashy pop-up tent um because I refused to sleep in hotels and I really wanted like the experience I was also like early 20s so it was it, it was a lot of fun and so one day making my way from one festival to another with this tent, with a, if I recall correctly, just like wearing a skirt, you know, wearing colorful clothing. I put the tent in the train. There was an old woman who wanted to sit down. And so I got up and said, please sit. I had my phone plugged in and my, and the tent like kind of on top of the, on top of the seats and are on top of the, you know, the holders for the, for the luggage. Um, and then I went and sat in the hallway um, and this, this, this man came up to me from, from the, you know, close to where the woman was sitting. He stood up and came and said, come get your, come get your tent, come get your bag. Cause I don't know if it's going to blow up or not. And so this solicited, like this was a whole, that was a mm. whole moment where kind of tapping into experiences that, really shape who you are. I mean, at that point, I think I was, I want to try to find it. I think I was, this must've been eight years ago. So yeah, early 20, I was like 21, 22. And at this point I was sitting in the, in the, in the hall of the, of the, of the train. And and there was two men sitting there as well. And they had spoken to me. They were from Jamaica. And so we were kind of like, you know, we're hanging out and this guy comes up. And so I just, I sat down. I I mean, I was sitting down already, but I stayed there. And then at one point I went, okay. I looked at the man who was yelling at me at this point. And I said, if you find the conductor, like the train, the one who controls the tickets, um, I'm confusing all my languages now, but if you, if you find them, um, man or woman, if you find them, Because there was, well, there was a few people that were, were working on the train, but if you find them and they tell me the same thing, I'll get up. And so I got up and then, you know, this guy, at this point I realized he was, I mean, I don't want to say inebriated, but he was pretty drunk. And so I thought, okay, so this is a drunk man, must've been in his forties. Um, and he wants me to take my bag. And so I got up and thought, well, this is really not right. Right. And so the two, the two others who were sitting with me, the, the, the young men, they were, they were like, why is this happening? You know? And so I stood up and I went into the, to the wagon and I kind of looked at the man who was at this point sitting in his seat again. And I said, what is, what, what, what is it? You know? And the, actually the train conductors, before I could do anything, they had actually come and there were other people again, always look for the people who are helping, right? They they had told them right. what had happened and they were kind of like analyzing the situation. Mind you, we're still in Belgium and I've still had really racist incidents on trains, on buses, other people, myself. So I'm not expecting much at this point, but 
they're, they're seemingly kind of taking my side because they're telling the man, sit down, calm down. And so as he's like pacing back and forth, they left for a minute. And I went into the wagon. The wagon was full. I didn't speak French at the time. Hadn't practiced my German in a really long time. All I had was English and Dutch. So in my best uh, French, German, then English, Dutch, I asked the wagon, like, do you think this man is correct to do this or not? You know, like, what is your, what is your opinion? And so I just asked the question calmly. And actually what happened after that was like, I want to say, I mean, the, the wagon was full and there were at least like five, six, 10 people who stood up and came and were like protecting me and literally like, they formed like a barrier around me um, to shield me from this man. And ultimately, long story short, because it's been a really long story, he got put off the train and I got to take his seat. And I just kind of stared at him from <laughs> the seat at the platform, just kind of like, you know what? You know, and, and the worst part is he had his, I won't go too much into that, but he, he had uh, someone who identified as his wife there. She was looking at me with so much you know, distress and pain in their eyes. Anyway, it, it, long story short, it's just, yeah, <laughs> I've had these experiences so I, for sure. And so <laughs> have my loved ones for sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing <laughs> this story. I mean, it's, it's on one hand, you get this terrible situation, but then on the other hand, you kind of get humanity right. being good and, 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 and seeing like, an offense being committed and trying to step in the best way they can. And, you know, so I'm one, I'm not wondering, I, I think I can see a very clear path with your, <laughs> with, with the work, especially with your focus on, and I got to get all the letters in cause I'm going to say yeah. DIJ, but I know diversity, <laughs> diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. With your work, and obviously you've talked about a little bit about working at the international school, but even beyond mm -hmm. that, you you have a heart for marginalized populations, my you know migrant refugee populations. What got you into working and advocating for these groups? So it's it's a combination. I think what the the ultimate source is my experience with my family. I mean, my parents wouldn't be considered the classic refugees, but their country, let's say, in some ways went up in flames after, right after they left. And then after that, my parts of my family started fleeing at that point, literally to Europe. And so I think from the time I was four or five, we had my mom's uh, youngest sister and her very young kids, um, Actually, they were they're my age, so four or five. They were in a refugee camp in Germany. So every weekend we would go to the camp and spend, you know, most wow. of my weekends there. And so at one point you start becoming a translator because, you know, even though I was learning Farsi at this point from my cousins because they could only communicate in that language, um, they were learning German. So over time, you know, we kind of helped each other in that way is 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 through language, through acts of kindness, I guess, and throughout the refugee camps. And then, so that's one thing. And then I think secondly is, is just a continuation of that or continuing to do that work. I mean, now that I've talked about my, I don't know if I talked about my hometown Deist, but the place, you know, very, we were, you know, the, one of the first migrant families and 
after that, I mean, if you don't count the, the, actually the Italians and the Turks that came way before, um, to work in the mines and, and build the roads, et cetera. But, but really like, um, this is in the, in the, in the, in the eighties and nineties at this point, we were one of the first people. And so when I was going into college or right in college, we had a, a wave of, again, of, of refugees from Syria, from different places. And there were a few people who landed in Deist. And so my mom would joke and say, oh, these poor people land in this place of all places. Because again, it's, it's, it's so local. And so there's so little opportunity for you to build community that there would be these ads online, you know, um, older lady, Syrian lady, um, doesn't speak this or that, but needs help at the dentist. Or So I would kind of always go. And at this point, you know, the journalism hadn't killed my my creative writing, which I'm working on now and getting that back. Um, but I would write about, you know, the the little moments with these people where you're not offering them much. You're just really there for them. And they, you can see just how much it means to people. And then I worked a lot with, you know, unaccompanied minor refugees. So really kids at this point who are displaced and who are going through, you know, the bureaucracy of having to apply for this kind of permit or go to this kind of school. And so I've written reports and kind of articles on that. And so, yeah, I guess it's all just a continuation of, of where you come from. And I always say in my presentations now, and this is, is kind of been like my driving quote for, I don't know how many years now is like, be who you needed when you were younger. And that for me, I mean, and, and much credit to, um, forget his name always. It's, it's, it's the, the guy who, um, was a co-creator of the kid president. Anyway, be who you needed when you were younger, yeah. um, is for me so important because I didn't realize it until I saw this quote a few years ago that that was maybe what I was doing. And if it could, if it could mean anything for anyone, then I know I was doing the right thing. You know, I, I imagine, you know, your story has, most of your story has taken place in the West, right? Yeah. But that thread of of your parents coming from Iran and your extended family clearly, <laughs> clearly is like foundational yeah. in the stuff that you're doing. And so I guess if we think about today and we think about your Iranian heritage, right? There is so much going on. <laughs> if you've, if you were listening and you've been following, there's a lot going on in Iran. And how, even in Switzerland, right? How have you been able to sort of share what's happening and amplify, you know, the protests that are currently happening in Iran? Yeah, uh, um, and I and I notice yeah. that I, you know, in the beginning or. I didn't really, I didn't really go, I'm from Iran. And, and, and there's a, there's a, there's a reason for that. I actually do that, um, especially lately, but there's a reason for it is that I didn't want to get too emotional. So I'm going to try my best to get to, to answer this question to, in, 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 in my fair. capacity. Um, I mean, there's so much to say about what's happening in Iran. Uh, I think tying it back to what we've talked about is I think 
I always kind of knew, and by always, I mean, ever since I really started thinking about, you know, why do I do what I do? Why is my resume or why was my resume kind of all over the place, but now it really makes sense. Um, you know, how did I end up here? How did I end up there? And what makes the most sense through this last, you know, I want to say almost half a year of, of absolute tragedy is kind of seeing in my fellow uh, Iranians, whether they're, you know, diaspora or in Iran, or is, is this quest for liberation that we were never, and by we, I mean, yeah, I, I would say actually, you know, all Iranians, um, no matter your political or religious affiliation, we were never really granted that liberation. And so as much as right now, you know, there's, it, it's absolutely tragic. I mean, I, I lost my cousin um, before the first day of school. This is way before Massa Amini. And I talked about this actually um, in the ALOC conference um, when I opened it. The the tragedy has been absolutely devastating and heartbreaking. And at the same time, it's been so enlightening and kind of a relief of understanding why I, for one, uh, and I also know many others in my community, in my Iranian community, we spend a lot of our lives trying to write or sing or be lawyers, humanitarian lawyers, or, you know, make art or, you know, in theater or in, in my case, and in so many other cases, kind of social justice work. And it's really because we were stripped of so much. And by we, I mean, you know, my parents, their parents, their parents, um, our kids, our, our futures, our ancestors. So, so yeah, um, I kind of completely sidetracked, but, but it's definitely, it goes back to the whole ancestors thing. And I feel increasingly just seeing the stories of my people and how they're uniting and how they are fighting. I feel like our ancestors are speaking to us and through us so much. Like it's this incredible thing the last few months where it's all made a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. Mm, I can see that. I, I, I think having spoken to other individuals who are part of diasporic communities, having spoken to marginalized folks, you know, you're right. There's this pull. I would say it's like this thread, right? If we're, if we're all part of this kind of like quilt of life or blanket or whatever, there's a thread that kind of pulls us (laughs) and draws us. And, and I think that it's, for me, it's easy to see, hearing just the highlight reel of your life (laughs) to see how you landed there because it's just clear right it's it's been it's been clear that your story has had one of movement your story has had one of immigration 
your your story is a story that's had micro you know microaggressions. Yours is a story of cross cultural mm-hmm. living. <laughs> there, yours is a story driven of purpose, right? And doing things you believe in and and reflective of the experiences that you've had and your loved ones have had. And so it it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we yeah. get here. And, and and it's only and the thing is when we're in it, we don't think about it as much. We but we know that we're supposed to we're called yeah. to what we're doing. I think it's when we stop and take a moment and go, oh, yeah. yeah, I guess I could see how five-year-old me would land, <laughs> would land here. <laughs> wow. I, right. I wish, yeah. I wish five-year-old, five-year-old me knew. And I, I said this, I had to do a talk for um, students at a different school in Switzerland. It was like a kind of like a TED style talk. And, you know, I was, when I was in the U.S. going into high school, I went to sign up for the IB and, I've said this in several places at the task force that I uh, co-founded with, you know, thanks to my school uh, and the International Baccalaureate and ECIS and ALOC, you know, shout out Kevin. Uh, shout exactly. out Kevin. As I have waited right. for this shout out, Kevin, shout out. Right, I've been shouting out in like four episodes. I'm like, shout out Kevin. <laughs> shout out Kevin always. Um, but but yeah. the, the thing is, is that, and I didn't really think about this until I, was about to go on stage with this task force. I had a few minutes in the beginning. It's kind of like, what do I talk about? And I didn't talk about it until the end when there's so much joy and love in the room that I was like, I'm just going to throw this out there. The IB didn't want me to do the IB. The counselor in the school was like, "Uh, I don't know if it's for people like you. And I was like, realizing that at this point, you know, how many years later, I mean, I, I did it, right? Because my mom was like, uh-uh, you go back and tell them I am doing it. So I did it. I finished it. And now like working with, <laughs> you know, some wonderful people at the IB and we're all learning and we're all seeing that the systems give children, like, let's go back to the children. They give them such crappy experiences and there is a way to prevent that from happening. You can't prevent all the bad things in the world, but you can definitely prevent some of the things that are happening in our system. So I, I see what you what you asked for before is, is with, with, with Iran as well. It's kind of like, what, what have you been doing? And honestly, what I've been doing is just telling stories and being honest about things that can be avoided. Um, children in our, on our playgrounds, in our, in our hallways, in our buildings, they can be protected from, using different slurs towards each other because there is no understanding of each other's stories. There is no emphasis on the impact that those words have forever. I mean, I vividly remember everything that happened to me and I'm sure my students and the alumni and so many people, they remember what happens to them when they're children. And so like, if what what's happening in Iran as well, my my dad came to one of my... I, I did a talk somewhere in Belgium and he came and my dad never, he never, first of all, would have said anything because also it's a whole thing around Iranians being followed and you can, you can be right. no one for the government or, or someone for the, go- everyone is scared that someone's going to show up and film you. And so my dad was going to not come and then he came with a mask. And after we were done, I was in a panel with these wonderful women 
And he's, he raised his hand and he's like, that's my daughter. And what I want to say <laughs> is I'm, you know, and he said, I'm not happy about it, but I never told my kids about where I'm from and what, what happened to my country. So I'm telling you all, anyone who's listening, talk about where you're from and tell, tell your kids everything, tell them everything. And he, you know, the way he ends is like, because when they know it's a revolution. And honestly, like that was a full circle moment for me. I wrote about it in some LinkedIn post um, (laughs) because like, I think what we're doing now with Iran, everyone's just telling the story of the people who have passed, of the people who have been imprisoned, of the people who have left the country 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It, and this is what needs to happen increasingly, right? And, you know, Chimamanda, like danger of a single story. Who's been telling our story for so long? Who's been able to, to say or even think, you know, what they want about your culture, your being, your your work, anything for, for how long and when do you interrupt it? Right. So, so yeah, I think, um, I think, I mean, I could go on, but I think that's, uh, is, is like kind of interrupting the, the single stories and, and making room for people's stories. You've just listened to an episode of the global chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.